You're listening to the Oilfoot Basics Discover podcast. Produced in collaboration with Digital Wildcatters, this is the podcast where we learn something new about our incredible industry on every single episode in an endeavor to never stop learning. Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, Derek Craig, and this is the Oilfoot Basics Discover podcast. I'll be learning right alongside of you here today. Definitely have a topic, and I, I say this on multiple episodes, but this one I truly, truly mean it. <laughs> I have no knowledge of coming into this. And so what we're going to be talking about today is oil and gas trading. So <laughs> even the scope, I'm not entirely sure of. So lots and lots of stuff here to learn today. I'm starting at ground zero. So like I said, I'll be learning alongside of you 100% here for this episode, but pretty excited to dive into this and learn about this aspect of our industry that probably the rest of us couldn't function without it. This wasn't going on in the background, of course. So in terms of intro material, I don't have a whole lot for this episode. And again, this is kind of one I'm recording way out. So happy new year, I guess. This will be the first episode of the new year. <laughs> so happy new years. But in terms of other intro material, one thing I just want to remind everybody, kind of refresh everybody's mind on, obviously be checking off of basics periodically. And we're posting new material and, and digital wildcatters now are collaboration efforts there. So they've got material. We've got material that's, that's being posted and updated all the time. One thing I do want to mention, uh, if you go to oilfoodbasics.com slash start, what that link is designed for is for someone who's completely new to the industry, or I guess not even doesn't have to be completely new to the industry, but trying to get that that big picture view of the industry, especially with a focus on on upstream. So if you go to that link, basically what it does is kind of outlines that course that Sebastian and I have designed, basically taking you through you know everything all the way from pre-drilling and, and land kind of stuff and finance economics kind of stuff figuring out where we want to drill all the way down through the basics of operations so we're talking about the, you know the basics of horizontal directional drilling you know how that's done the basic tools basic processes you know what the mud is you know basic <laughs> mud pro- uh, properties rig stuff <laughs> all the way down through completions and even stuff in between the two drilling and completions but all the way down through completions and even in the production and all the way through plugging and abandonment. So, and I guess even some refinement and the midstream stuff just kind of mentioned sprinkled in there. But anyways, it's basically kind of a, a big hierarchy, you know, view of oil and gas operations with a focus on upstream. So if you're new to the industry or just want to fill in some gaps, you know, if you've worked all your life on production or whatever, or midstream, whatever be the case, if you want to fill in the rest of your knowledge and just get that fundamental awareness of how everything ties together. That's what that course is designed for. And it also has links to webinars. Every now and then we'll do a webinar that kind of all that material summarized up in about an hour. So anyways, that's that's a good link to make reference of uh, if you or anybody else has that desire to, <laughs> to see how everything kind of connects. That's why we build it. Sebastian and I built that a couple of years ago, basically is just a resource because nothing really ties everything together like this course is designed to do and has you know, we build it like we would want to read it or, you know, or take it. So it's got videos, it's got the diagrams, you know, it's, it's got everything. So pretty good. We tried to build that as a, as a pretty good resource to everybody. So just know that's there. And, you know, always reach out if you have any questions or anything further that you think we should hit on or, or whatever be the case, but hopefully just a good resource out there that we can all be aware of and, and share around as, as the opportunity comes. So that's enough about that. We've got obviously plenty to talk about today. So I'm excited to introduce this topic and our guest today. So with me today, we've got Michael Tanner. He is a research trading analyst for a company called Sandstone Capital Group out of Sunny and I believe Surf City, Huntington Beach, California. A beautiful place. I actually got a sweatshirt <laughs> that I should be wearing when I'm recording this. I didn't I forgot that you were from Huntington. <laughs> but glad oh, to is have that, uh, is that where you're from? No, no. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I'm from Ohio, but I have vacationed there once. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it's it's beautiful. I've, I've actually just lived here about six months now, and I've really started, I've really enjoyed it. So. Oh, there we go. But anyway, so Michael Tanner, everyone, <laughs> how are yeah, you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. No, excited to be here. I, I'm a big fan, you know, of both what you do and Digital Wildcatters. And I think, you know, kind of like you mentioned, oil and gas trading is something that kind of goes on in the background of a lot of operations. Mm-hmm that doesn't necessarily get touched. And I think a lot of people, I think in the industry, specifically in the upstream, don't necessarily contact it every day, but it goes around in the background. I'm kind of just excited to talk more about it. So yeah, for sure. And this is something that I'm glad you reached out to me to, to do this, this topic, because this isn't one that I would have thought to hunt someone down for. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I love those topics, you know, ones that I don't even, I'm not even really aware of. 
And, you know, that's, you know, getting really into the true meaning of this podcast, you know, stuff like this that <laughs> probably only a handful of people in our entire industry has a working knowledge of. So with that said, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess kind of hit on to, you know, what all scope, I kind of did a poor intro to the topic. So what all scope, you, you know, you plan on talking about today as well as a little bit about you? Yeah, no problem. So I'll start with kind of my background. My background lies heavily in, in research and trading analyst. I was actually, I went to school at Colorado School of Mines actually to be a, didn't really know what I wanted to be. I actually, you know, went as a, just to actually, I was on a baseball scholarship. And so <laughs> when I got there, I, I kind of, I fell in love with engineering, but I also fell in love with economics and this idea of, you know, trading. I, I we played the stock market game in one of mm-hmm. the classes I took. And I really just fell in love with it. And that's kind of guided my classes and the jobs I was taking as I was coming yeah. out. And I, when I went to work in the industry, I started working for two, three years as just a research analyst for a, an oil desk, which is basically a proprietary trading company who their job was to just financially profit off trading oil futures. It was just as simple as that. And the amount of research and analytics and real-time data stuff that goes into it, you, you basically need a team of people to just manage the research and manage mm-hmm. the data. And then you have to have traders or executors, as we call them, who go out and actually place the orders in the market. And there's kind of two separate roles. So when I first kind of broke in. It was more on the research side. And about a year ago, I transitioned and came over here to Sandstar to start working with their trading desk. We opened up an oil desk and an index desk about six months ago, which is really cool. And so, yeah, so kind of the lead into what I'm doing with Sandstone Capital Group. We're sort of a full suite investment and consulting company. So we, we run a trading, consulting, and custom data BI solution verticals. I specifically work in the trading and consulting side and basically that kind of encompasses everything basically on the trading side there's both proprietary and non-proprietary which means internal and then for other clients we do a couple hedging projects for other small emps so that kind of falls into that non-proprietary category and then on the consulting side we we consult companies on you know on how to hedge if they do want to hedge Mm -hmm. we do some outsource investor relations stuff which is more strategic communications just a lot of market research hey you're looking to enter the oil and gas technology, the oil and gas tech field, what, what, you know, and you're coming to market with this SaaS platform, what, what are other companies in that industry doing, you know, because that's more of a, especially that's a private business. So, you have, mm. you, know, no, it's, you know, having the connection in that business allows you to do that. And then more business intelligence. A lot of the stuff we do is cut. And one of the biggest verticals we have is a custom data and BI solutions vertical. That we, we have a really good team of software engineers who can, who put together, you know, basically business intelligence reports that, you know, can vision, you know, that analyze and, and, and are able to visualize any type of either internal data or external data. They're more pretty custom and we, we design them towards the individual client. And that's kind of how we focus, you know, we're more of a client focused group, even though we do have a small oil desk that we do trade our own on, it's not necessarily the focus of what we do. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. So when, when you talk about you opened up a trading desk and everything, so is that just trading like commodities or actually like companies and company stocks? Yeah. So I'll kind of get into that and kind of the differences of what happens. So when I talk about, when you talk about a desk, it's just how they, the, I'm trying to think of how to put this. In, <laughs> in the industry, if you have a company, say for example, just a classic hedge fund, they're investing in all different types of markets. They may be, they may have a cryptocurrency vertical. They may have a commodities vertical. Specifically gotcha. commodities, they may have an index and they just call them desks. So oh, okay. forgive me, I probably should have said that up front. So like, <laughs> no, gotcha. You hear me reference an oil desk or natural gas desk. That's just, that's just the natural gas vertical that those traders trade. It's the desk. Is what okay, they call it. gotcha. Yeah, you just be prepared for crazy questions like that for me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And that's, again, that's kind of why I'm excited to go over this because a lot of this stuff is, is new to people. And it's, yeah. you know, I, I get a lot of the same questions, you know, what, you know, oh, you trade oil. Well, well, what's oil going to do? Where's, where's it going? What causes right. my price to move? You know, yeah. and, you know then I, you know, how does this really affect me as the average engineer? Because I think some people have this idea of, well, you know, price going up, you know, does that affect me? Well, if my company's hedged, how does that affect, you know, within you know, small to mid-sized EMPs, a lot of them, crazily enough, aren't even hedged. They just don't know about it. And so it's an interesting, mm. you know, so it's a way for companies to really be able to lock in their revenue. But it's also an interesting look at how much the percentage of company or the percent of oil that it actually is hedged. And there's mm-hmm. so much stuff. That, and yeah. I think really, you know, probably where we'll start, though, is just kind of 
how oil gets traded, because I think that's a huge misconception as well. I think a lot of people, when they think of oil, they kind of go to what you said was commodities and like futures trading. Mm. And that's definitely one part of oil, but it, there's a huge, huge part of it. I mean, there's actually transportation of oil. And you talk about all this physical barrels that's on the market and how it actually gets traded. So I think that's probably where we'll begin in terms of yeah. actually how it gets traded. Let's go for it. <laughs> They're cool. So I mean, I think I think the first thing that you know is the biggest not misconception, but I think that people forget about when they talk when when they think about oil is, you know, like I mentioned, they think of I'm going to go out and open up a brokerage account with TD Ameritrade and I'm going to buy a futures contract and I'm going to become a speculator in the market. And there are people that do that for sure. It's not necessarily the bulk of the industry. And when you talk about the majority of oil that gets traded, mm -hmm. it's extremely. It's mostly not mostly physical because the number of financial contracts that are traded outweigh like 60 it's I, the number is insane it's over 10 to 1 the amount of financial contracts versus actual physical bills on the market but all the physical bills actually have to get traded every single day as well so it's just an incredible amount of movement and so that's kind of you know the first thing is that there are really two ways oil gets traded it's physically where a buyer and a seller are actually agreeing to physically purchase oil from somebody at a given price at a given date it operates somewhat like a futures contract but you're mm -hmm. actually just agreeing to buy physical production and this is you know usually done by integrated oil you know big integrated oil and gas companies your chevrons bps anyone who has an upstream some sort of midstream and then a some sort of downstream operation they're okay. going to participate in the physical market for a bunch of reasons but and we can get into those but you know midstream companies also engage in the physical market they are the people who are actually tra helping transport all this oil so if they can move it around better it definitely trades them or it helps them out and then oil trading desks there are really really large prop trading companies who instead of actually trading the futures commodities contract they'll go out and trade physical oil it's a high price point to get into but it can sometimes be way more profitable than if you're just trying to sit at your computer and trade futures it's the classic the classic person thinks mm. so and, and those and that requires not only a large amount of cash but huge expertise i mean you probably to be able to secure enough i wouldn't even understand it would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars you would have to have available basically at the onslaught in order to open up say a physical oil desk oh wow. that was your company did. so much like an offshore oil well the numbers just get crazy yeah Wow. And, you know, I mean, as we get a little further, I mean, basically, why do they participate in the market is for a couple of reasons. First, first off, and this sounds stupid, but it really, <laughs> they're, they're trying to make money. It's not as complex, they're just, they're just trying to make money. But really, there's a lot of sort of different reasons when you get down to it other than just profit. What's nice about for these integrated oil and gas companies, they're attempting to secure the lowest price that they can root from their upstream down into their refineries. If we can make a little bit of incremental cash on transporting our own oil, well, that just helps everybody out. You know, oil and natural gas decks, along with these midstreams, you know, they're looking at all parts of the physical market in order to make, in order to see if there's a way where I can buy a certain blend of oil in mm -hmm. this region and I can sell it in another region for a premium, which is you talk about, we talk about, you know, they're called spread traders who basically what they'll do is they'll they'll go buy oil in one region which one blend of wti might, might be trading for maybe for whatever reason the dollar lower than it is trading you know up into than what can they, someone in new york is willing to purchase well spread traders well they will just purchase that oil and they have the ability to physically move it and they'll be able to just make money off the spread or what's known as the basis mm, okay. and so there's just a lot of different so there's there's really a lot of different reasons people get in the physical market but it's a huge part of the industry and you know if you work at an you know if you work at an upstream operator you probably don't you don't necessarily this is probably the one aspect that doesn't really touch an upstream oil and gas producer but they're not necessarily participating too heavily in the physical market unless they're really associated with a midstream company but you know it's a big part of how oil and oil moves and it's a little different than I think what a lot of people think of when they think of just oil and gas trading. Oh, you're going to yeah. go sit in front of a computer and trade a futures contract. Yeah. Well, I guess one thing I'm confused on there too, because it's like, I mean, the upstream is, you know, where it's produced. So how can we not really be the ones that are doing, you know, involved with the physical trading? Because, you know what I mean? Like it's literally trading hands. Well, 
Yeah, well, I guess what I mean by that is you're handing over the company to the midstream, but you're accepting the price of what it's going for right now. You might have hedged a little bit and said, hey, we're going to say, but you're subjugated to, I guess you're physically giving the oil to somebody, but you're not, you're making 100% profit off that because you're the one that went out and got it. So I should have made that a little more clear. No, you're fine. The other thing I want to maybe circle back to just for a minute here is that just the awareness on the different blends, basically, just that make sure everybody's kind of on the same page here. So, you know, well, it's a different composition, you know, based off where it's produced, different formations, obviously. But I guess one of my questions to you is kind of how much, you know, variance do we see there? I mean, because whenever, you know, we talk oil price and upstream, especially, you know, we just go to the, you know, WTI, right? It's typically the go-to. And that's kind of what everybody has a rough idea of what mm-hmm. it is that day or that week or the month or whatever. But obviously, that's not exactly the exact price that, you know, our companies are getting for the oil that we're producing. So can you just hit on that for just, you know, whatever and just explain how variant is that? So if it's like 55, do we go all the way? Do we see it all the way from 35 to, you know, 75 or 80? Or, you know, what what does that kind of look like? No, it's a good question. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot, you know, when we think of the price of oil, we think of just the WTI. And I encourage people, there's a really good website. Literally, it's oilprice.com. Go to it and click oil prices. You will Mm -hmm. be It'll be unbelievable. I'm on it right now. I think I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling for about 30 seconds and I haven't stopped. You know, I mean, now, the, and they're getting into a lot of the international blends as well, but gotcha. there are, you know, in the United States, we have, w, you know, we have WTI crew, Louisiana like coastal grade A. We could go down for a huge number of these and it based mm-hmm. on specifically where they're produced and how much it costs for a refinery to take that blend and make it into whatever they're selling, whether it's gasoline, jet fuel, you know, to make certain types of fuel, specifically jet fuel, it really helps to have a really heavy crude, you know, Venezuelan crude, and it is actually really, really good for high quality jet fuel because it's so heavy. Mm. They have to go down there and steam flood it. Refineries <laughs> So that's if you're, a, if you're a physical trader, you're always watching the oil production of Venezuela because that's a huge indicator of how that forward curve is going to fall mm. for that specific blend. So it's, it's really, you know, really interesting when you look at, you know, what, ref, you know, when you're in that physical market, what do refiner, what type of blends do the refineries purchase? Which ones are physically getting traded? If I'm buying a WTI blend, which is, you know, was produced in West Texas, that's going to generally be your highest grade. You're going to get a premium for that if you're able to ship that say, to New York in the example that I did. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I appreciate so that. So I don't have to answer most of the questions, but yeah, if you I mean, go, to, go to oilprice.com and, you know, there's at least eight different ones on that website, specifically in the U.S. And there's, I think there's over 15, over 15. There's honestly new ones getting added all the time and they're getting adjusted just because there's, diff, you know, API numbers come out of a new field and it's just slightly different. Hey, we need, you know, adjust the basis on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's it's kind of set for the the region then. So it's not so much like, okay, we're going to sell it, you know, here's a specific density, here's a specific properties of this batch of oil or whatever you want to call it. Yes, it is like that. But generally, those that stuff comes out of the same region. So when you talk about WTI crude, that is the specific blend that comes out of West Texas. And there's a slight variance in what it is. But generally, when it comes out of that, that's what it's called. So the different, you know, all around the country, you'll see different blends pop up in different regions. Okay. Gotcha. You know, Louisiana has their classic. They call it the Louisiana Light up on the coast of the of Atlantic. It's a super heavy crude. It's called Coastal Grade A, but it trades. But that stuff's only $48 because you can only use it for jet fuel. Whereas if you want to get some nice Louisiana Light, which is the stuff that comes, you know, the offshore stuff, that's $61 a barrel. So you can hmm. kind of see, depending on what you're using, you know, yeah, because jet fuel is only, I think, if, you know, a barrel of oil is 42 gallons. So I think this is kind of the easiest way to look at it. Of that 42 gallons, only nine of them goes towards jet fuel, and only about 19 gallons goes towards gasoline. The rest goes actually towards plastics. So when you're mm-hmm. looking at sort of actually where the actually this crude's going and what, what it ends up being, it's actually, again, super interesting. But yeah, again, it sort of depends what you're using it for, what you're yeah. buying it for, and where it's being sourced. And that's why all the different blends depending on where you're producing, where it's coming from. Hey, if it's coming from offshore, well, the reason why it's $61 is because BP had to pay a boatload of money to get that from <laughs> offshore down, you know, just into the yeah. to onshore before they even piped it into a Goodness, uh, yeah. refinery. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I appreciate that, that greater awareness there of everything in play. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. And I'm glad. Feel free to interject if I, if I sometimes do that. 
So that's kind of a, but that's, I think, a really good overview of just the physical market, how it works, and the companies that participate in. And then, you know, sort of the other half of the market, which is more than half, to be honest with you. I, I've looked up the number. It's actually, it's six to one right now. There are six more, there are six times the amount of physical financial or financial contracts being traded than there are actual physical barrels on the market right now. So that's again an interesting example to how the how the industry works. Hmm. When you have six times the amount of financial contracts that will probably never be fulfilled compared to only about if it's a pure commodity since we're talking about a pure commodity. Okay. So most um, of it's not physical traded then most of it's gonna be like the financial trading? Yes, and this is it, most of it's the financial trading, but the okay. difference is the financial trading doesn't necessarily happen every not everyone is doing that every single day. If you work for a physical oil company, you are having to offload and fill so much production every single day because you have a quota. So it's just a little in, in terms of the way that it actually gets traded. If you're a financial company who specializes in energy derivatives trading, they may only make two trades a month. They may only enter a position two or three times a month financially because they're just looking on a chart and picking good levels on how to actually make money. If they were a physical if they were participating in the physical market as an oil desk, well, they have they have quotas they have to meet every single day because they're participating in that market. You have to be granted access in certain markets, maybe not necessarily in Texas, but around the country. So if you're you know participating in that market and you're not taking the requisite load that they want, it's much like the electrical market. If you operate in that and you have a load, and then there's really the kind of the other half of the market, which as we'll kind of get into, I guess, in a little bit, it's not necessarily half, it's a little more, but for it's kind of the other version of the physical market. And it's really what I think people think of it. It's basically the futures market. Now, there's a lot of what we call derivatives underneath that. Futures is sort of a blanket term. There are futures contracts. There are swaps companies can enter to. You can buy options. So there's a lot of different financial instruments that you can use to trade oil. It doesn't just have to be I'm buying one barrel and selling it again. So okay. basically what it is, is it's two parties agreeing to buy or sell oil or some sort of oil derivatives, we call it, which is some sort of variation of a contract. Because now these are completely financial contracts. You can write to a degree. Now, we, you can't go customize your mean. You can't go out and customize one with the, the, you know anybody. But if, mm -hmm. you know, you were, you know, if you're entering into a different if you want, I guess in theory you could, but they don't actually allow that. They're just, yes. they've got clearly specified derivatives, but theoretically they could add one at any point. They actually did just add one, I guess, six months ago. So there's sort of an example of that. Oh, okay. Um, so pretty infrequent then. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> you know, we have, you have a regular futures contract, which is, you know, one contract that you agree, you enter an agreement to buy a thousand barrels of oil. It represents a thousand barrels okay. um, that you could theoretically physically take at the end of the contract when it expires but neither me or you want a thousand barrels showing up on our property <laughs> so we're going to offload that contract or sell it at before that expiration date or whenever that contract expires okay i mean so that's sort of the basics of a futures contract you're just entering into a paper as i i call it the paper market a lot of people confuse that with paper trading but <laughs> literally i'm just agreeing on paper i'm going to sell you this and i'm going to flip this contract before i have to actually buy take inventory of the oil because nobody wants that okay the people get stuck with uh, it every now and then that doesn't work out and end up with a thousand barrels <laughs> yeah well they the cme who is the the people that the exchange that runs all of this generally they automatically close people out like if you accidentally just have one contract that you hold till expired they'll just roll you over to the next contract automatically they're smart enough to know that the end of an individual trading oil doesn't necessarily want thousand <laughs> barrels showing up nor do they have <laughs> yeah. the to actually take it but if you're a larger prop, if you're a larger energy derivatives company, there have been cases where you know they you know they've got ten their ten contracts and they have to go out and you know pay a couple thousand dollars to store them for a couple of days before they can resell <laughs> them back on the open market. Now it, it it can happen to larger energy derivatives companies for sure. But the average guy, if you're just you know if you're listening to this and somewhat you know at the end of this you're interested in actually trading the oil futures markets, which you can totally do, you don't have to worry about ever getting a thousand barrels showing up to your doorstep. Yeah. They'll just roll you over to the next contract. Good to know. Man, that's interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, no worries. But, you know, basically the companies then that participate in this market, they're sort of the same as the ones in the physical, but they're a little different. This is where the EMP companies come in and they actually participate, not frequently, but they do operate in this 
financial market due to, and it's the classic what people talk about, hedging oil. When an oil company hedges, they participate and they buy some sort of futures derivative. Midstream companies operate in this market as well because generally when you're selling physical oil, it's nice to pair it with a futures contract. They, they can see it as sometimes help padding sort of the profit on it. And then oil and gas desks. So if you're, an oil, you know, if you're a trading company and you have an oil or natural gas or you know, LNG or any sort of market, or any sort of market that you want to you want to start a desk in, you can go ahead and throw one up. And you know, much like the physical market, the reason why they participate is fairly honest. It's profit. They this is mainly where you think about your classic speculators trying to go into a market, buying a bunch of contracts, and just trying to purely speculate on the price of oil. Mm. But the other and then the other half of it is all done via hedging, which is mainly which is basically the only way ENP companies participate in the financial market. Most ENP companies, and I, I would hope no ENP companies have an oil desk. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> but most public large oil and gas companies do hedge most at least anywhere between 20 to 40% of their production, even though in the last like six months, it's gone way down, at least as we look towards 2020. In but terms of the that, amount that they've hedged or value yeah, of their so hedge? The amount of the production on the phys- of the f- versus their physical production. So the okay. biggest thing that an EMP company, the biggest reason why EMP companies hedge is to attempt to just help balance their sheet. You know, if we can guarantee a portion of revenue of our oil and we don't have to subjugate ourselves to just the whims of the financial market, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, oil is just going to spike one way or go down the other way. Cause sometimes it just does that. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to lock in some revenue so we don't look as risky to outside investors. And so they'll do that in a variety of ways. You know, you can go sell futures contracts because if you're producing, if you're an EMP and you're producing oil, every barrel you produce of oil, this is what we call a physical oil. You're going long in the market. You've produced a barrel and you're trying to sell it. That's you're a buyer, meaning you're in the market and you're trying to sell it. So what's the easiest way to hedge against your production? Well, that would be to go into the financial market and sell short a futures contract in order to sort of balance it out. Hey, in case the price goes too low, if I need to lock in a certain price, I can mm-hmm. go in and short the financial market in order to, you know, sort of bridge that gap. You know, kind of the example I use is a lot of companies – $45 is their break-even point. They have to make sure that oil, that they guarantee 40, you know, at least some of their production at $45 a barrel or else they will, they will go under and they can't even pay the debts that mm-hmm. they've got. Mm-hmm. And so what they will go into is if, say, for example, that's 10,000 barrels. And the companies say doing, you know, 100,000 barrels. They're like, we want to hedge 10% of our oil and we're going to do it. And we're going to do that via the futures market. Cool. Well, what they're going to go in and do is, as we learned, one futures contract is worth a thousand barrels. So they want to get ten thousand barrels hedged. You go out and buy ten contracts at the spot price, and you short it. Meaning, if the price goes down, you make money. If the price goes up, you don't. You be, you begin to lose money. And that's mm-hmm. sort of how they balance out their production. So if oil continues to go up, great. Ten percent of their production, they're going to have to pay a lower price for because they've entered into this financial agreement. Okay. Now what's in it for like the traders or whoever's like taking on the hedge, who's basically offering it to the operators or whatever, whenever, you know, the prices obviously, you know, keep going down or, you know, vice versa where it bites them, you know, instead of the, the EMP companies, is that just, they still just do that because there's still hope that it goes up or above the hedge or, or what? Yes. I mean, the reason why the market is extremely volatile, which I think is more your question, is because there are people who speculate and don't and and are purely in the market to make money. They don't have physical production to hedge. They're only in the market to, hey, I think oil is going to go down, so I'm going to short it right now and I'm going to buy at a lower price and then take that incremental profit. And that's how that's the only way I'm going to make money. Those are your classic what they call oil desks. Gotcha. And so they are sort of the reason for a lot of the volatility. And this is something that I kind of alluded to earlier, and I'll circle back to. They're, you know, in terms of, since these are financial contracts, you can just kind of write them up whenever. And it's gotten to the point now where the amount of oil and gas financial trading that's going on supersedes how much physical oil is actually being produced, almost like six to one. That's how many people are in the market attempting to speculate, which is why you can sometimes see these huge swings of the price of oil. Hmm. Hence why oil companies want EMPs want to come in and try to hedge some of their production so 
you know, they don't have to, you know, go through a round of layoffs in mm-hmm. their drilling department because, you know, it's just oil's been 30 bucks a barrel for too long and we don't have anything hedged. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's kind of where sort of the fit in with sort of the oil and gas traders who they're only in the financial market looking to create a profit and they're going to just go through the CME and if they think the price is going to go up, they're going to buy. If they think it's going to go down, they're going to go sell. They don't necessarily interact too much with the E&P companies because the E&P companies are just selling their oil that they're producing in the physical market at the spot price of wherever their location is. So if okay. it's a, you know, BP, for example, if they're producing, if it's their, any of their offshore stuff, they're getting about 60 bucks a barrel for it. Well, you know, on the financial market, you know, I'm, I got it pulled up right now. WQI is trading at about 50, you know, WTI is trading about $56, but their Louisiana light blend is trading at about, you know, a little bit lower. So they would go out and short that market in order to hedge whatever physical production they have. Okay. Have you seen like the amount of hedges being done or, you know, like you said, like percentage of the company's production being hedged? Have you seen that kind of decreasing? Because at least from EMP perspective, some... It seems like a, a trend that it's kind of going down because prices are, are staying low and what it's not worth as much for companies to try and hedge it or, or what's the what do you think is kind of driving that? Well, you are correct. Most companies, as I as I told you earlier, about most companies hedge about twenty five to forty percent of their yearly production. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about what's happening in the past six months from an E and P perspective and looking into twenty twenty, the you know a lot of this is not proprietary, but you get different estimates from different analytics companies to how about how much companies are hedged. But, you know, generally what the consensus is right now is there's only about eight to 10% of 2020 oil production hedge right now in the United States. Hmm. And that is a huge, and that is for a variety of, re- you know, that could be for a variety of reasons, but basically what that sort of shows is I, you know, what that shows is companies are pretty bullish on oil prices. When oil prices go higher, you generally tend to hedge less because it's really easy to make money when oil just continues to tick up. When oil goes down because you're always you're still producing in the physical market, mm. you have to shorten order because you can't it's hard to turn off production. You have to sell your oil every day. BP can't store all of their oil just mm-hmm. because oil drops below thirty dollars. They still have to offload it somewhere unless yeah. they turn off wells. That's never a good situation. So so yeah, that's sort of how the interaction or that's sort of an interesting thing when you think about looking into 2020 and how these companies are sort of out kind of lining up their sheets. They're expecting, you know, at least the risk they're expecting to take on is, is more than they have in the past. And what it signals, I think, to the market is that we'll probably see oil, you know, probably $10 a barrel more by the end of the next year. And that's just a guess. And that's basically just the same guess everybody's making because like, <laughs> we, could easily see it. we could easily see it the other way. That's what's, that's what's funny. You know, all EMPs, they're just basically, you know, and sort of how the cycle works is, you know, one company, you know, two EMPs come out and say forcefully, we're, we're reducing our hedge because we're bullish on oil. Well, it's just, everyone else follows suit. A lot of companies just sort of follow the leader. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of have these consensuses around, oh, well, now we, you know, now that all these, you know, everyone thinks oil is going to go up. Well, that's great. It could go up, but it also could just as well go down regardless of whether or not every major oil company is only hedged 8% in anticipation of a huge, what we would call bull market. Okay. And that's where it's higher, right? Well, excuse me? The bull market, does that when the price are good, price goes higher or what? So okay. it's the, yeah, sorry. In a bull market, you have a there's price going up. Bear market, the price goes down. It's a bull outside of the New York Stock Exchange, which is interesting. There's no bull associated with commodities. I don't know how that's translated. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure really what that referred to. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. No, it, no it, that's fine. Huge bronze bull outside of the New York Stock Exchange. That's why they, they call it a bull market. Gotcha. Okay. But, uh, Whatever relevance that has. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so these E&P companies, you know, when they're when they're looking to hedge, basically all they're doing is they're selling futures contracts or there's a couple other different types of derivative that they actually enter in. You know, a lot of the times if you're, you know, I don't I don't know how many average engineers do this, but if you sit in on your company's investor relations, you know, quarterly report, they'll tell you, you know, how much contract, you know, what their hedging position is, how much of it was just futures contracts that they sold, how much was it was what are called swaps, which mm-hmm. basically just allows you to it's as simple as it sounds. It just allows you to swap whatever pr- the current price is for whatever the price of it you agreed back then. Hmm. It's basically it's just a swap contract. So if the price is $40 right now, but I agreed a month ago to swap 
to enter into a swap agreement where I'll get 50 for it. Well, you've just now beat the market. You've made $10. And the person who holds the other side of that contract has to buy it from you for 50 bucks. So oh, okay. that's sort of the most, that's actually the most popular way to enter into it because they're super customizable because you can, the agreement is between the buyer or seller. And this is where really full customization can come. And, you know, a company like BP can have their favorite broker come in and they can really craft a really nice swap agreement that, you know, allows them multiple ways to lower their risk and not have to tie up so much capital because hedging does require you to, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to, you know, each contract, so one contract to hold overnight, you, it's 60, you know, $6,400. So it can get kind of expensive if you're trying to, you know, if you're holding say 50 contracts or a thousand contracts, you know, that, that number can get a little expensive. So tying up capital hedging isn't, all this capital hedging isn't necessarily what these EMPs are doing. So swaps are really nice because it's not actually entering the market and selling a contract. That's the majority of the work that Sandstone and we do for EMP clients in terms of hedging is actually swaps. And the third one, which is put options, which is, I don't necessarily need to get into it because it's a super technical version, but it's sort yeah. of the other interest. It's, if you've heard of options in the stock market, it sort of operates the same way, but now we're talking about options on futures contracts. It's I liken it to a dream within a dream inception style. You know, an option. <laughs> oh man, it, it, that movie's so confusing. <laughs> yeah, well, an options contract is that you have an option to buy a certain amount of securities at a given price at a given time. It operates kind of like a futures contract, but for stocks. Hey, I want, you know, it, it allows the average guy to go out and buy you know, a couple hundred shares of Amazon without having to have, you know, $15,000 because Amazon mm. trades $1,000 a share. So, you know, oil guys, they took this and applied it to the futures market. Well, hey, well, well we can just make options contracts off of futures contracts. That's, I always joke, it's the dream within a dream. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. One question in terms of the hedging real quick, and, this, <laughs> and you guys have probably picked up on these, these questions are harder for me to articulate, but in terms of hedging in general, so we have a company, let's say, for example, 10% of, it, of their production is hedged. I've mm -hmm. always, in my mind, I've always pictured that as, okay, that's one or two big entities that's hedged all their production. But is it actually, you know, it could be, you know, hundreds or thousands of entities, right? That kind of builds up their percentage or, or am I wrong on that? I don't think, I guess I'm, I need a little more clarification on the question. Are you necessarily <laughs> talking about, when you talk about how much production on the physical market, when I say 10% of all 2020 production is hedging, you're talking about is that just three, is that just the big integrated companies all hedging or do individual small operators get into it and hedge? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I laugh because I'm like, I'm not sure I can clarify. Like <laughs> that, that's a, that I barely articulated that myself, <laughs> but no, I was, I was meaning more on the, the person who's offering the hedge to the MP or whatever. Like, is that you know, one entity or is that, you know, multiple people on the market that's offering, you know, that hedge or that, that future price? Oh, yes. So that's the, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME. They're the exchange in which you have to, they basically manage the transaction between the buyer and the seller. They allow the buyers and sellers to come together and make an agreement. So a lot of it's done over computers. Some of the bigger EMP companies have brokers who, you know, this is, a, you know, this is your classic stockbroker who all a stockbroker is, is I can call you up on the phone, ask you to give me money, and then I'll go invest in the stock market for you. And I make a commission off that, whether or not you actually make money. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these companies, what they'll do, E&P companies, is they, have big is they have big hedge brokers who have access to big banks that give them customized financing and customized entrance into the CME because Goldman Sachs can get a meeting with the CME and persuade them to get this type of contract, whereas me and you cannot oh, okay. to just go out and trade. So gotcha. it's, you know, the bigger you are, the access you have, they, we call them prime brokers, mm -hmm. which are, they're the big brokers that deal with huge, huge sums of money. And that gets dealt with at an institutional level. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, so no problem. But and then, to, I mean, sort of to kind of then, I guess, an answer the question that I thought you asked, because I think it's an interesting, I think there's an interesting lesson from <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, no, well, I, it's super interesting because, you know, of that 10%, so when I, you know, I previously mentioned 10% of 20, of the 2020 projected oil production is hedged. Mm -hmm. So that I'm just talking about, you know, I, I don't know the exact numbers, I don't have them in front of you, but right. if, we're, if we're expected to produce, you know, we do about nine, you know, we do 10 million barrels a day. So times 365, you know, times 365, you know, whatever that number is, 
whatever, you know, whatever that number is, mm-hmm. only 10% of that is hedged. Now, the interesting part is the majority of that production comes from the same companies. You know what I mean? The small EMP company isn't making up a huge percentage of 2020 oil production. The majority of it are exactly who you think they are, the big players in the middle, you know, the big mm-hmm. players in West Texas, the integrated ones who are doing offshore drilling. So when you talk about the companies that are actually hedged, it's mainly your really large public companies. Your your independent small EMPs who may or may not be, you know, specifically who aren't venture funded, who are more family style, which you'd be incredibly surprised about how many of those companies oh, small sure. family owned EMPs exist versus, you know, what we sort of think of as the classic private equity startup mm-hmm. oil and gas company who don't even know that they can do this. You know, they have 4,000 barrels of oil they're producing a month and they have no idea that they could lock in a guaranteed price for all of their production because they're super dependent on what that oil price is. Mm-hmm. If you're only doing 4,000 barrels, you know, a company like BP who has multiple revenue streams, mm-hmm. you know, they can take a little bit of hit in their oil, you know, in their upstream business, mm-hmm. as long as they can profit from it off their downstream business. But, uh, yeah. you know, a really small EMP company who they, they, we produce, you know, oil, you know, the company I've, you know, I've worked with in, you know, Eastern Colorado, who, you know, they're just doing 1200 barrels and he, and, and they just want to make sure that they're, you know, if oil all of a sudden drops below his break even points that, that, that he's, that they're protected. So mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot more of those out there that aren't participating and the majority of the hedging that, that goes on is by the bigger companies because they can invest the time to do the risk management models mm-hmm. to, you know, build the classic, you know, models that would, oh, what, what is oil going to do? The, the small guy's not doing that, and, and nor really should he. He's got bigger things to do. He's doing it all. Yeah. I guess the last question I have on, on hedging, I can let you move on, <laughs> is yeah. what's the what's the typical, like, length? So, I mean, you hedge for, you know, a certain period, right? So, is it typically for the year at this price or six months, or do you have multiple contracts that are at different lengths, or, or what's the general thoughts on that? Yeah. So, there's basically what's called the forward curve, where if you go look at the futures price for each month, you know, we talk about there's the current contract or the, the, the month that's upcoming, mm-hmm. which is what people consider the actual price of oil. And then there's the prices of the contracts that are in months. You know, you go out and buy a June 2020 futures contract. It's, I mean, it's just a guess. I don't even know what the price is. I probably should have pulled that up. But when you enter into, when you look to and actually in an EMP sits down to hedge, what they'll do is they'll generally buy contracts on a monthly basis. Oh, okay. So they'll buy for the month ahead. When that month comes, they'll sell. I mean, this is all strategized out and you know, the previous year. So they're just yeah. having their prime broker do it to do it for them. But they'll sell the contract, re-up the position and just continue there because in case there's a huge spike in oil and sort of what we'll get to what causes you know oil price to move if there's, you know, yeah. like, Saudi gets hit with a drone strike, which happened three weeks ago or, you know, happened a month ago. And that causes the price of oil to skew now $10 higher. And it's just going to continue to do that for the rest of the year. It's really nice to be on a month to month basis where you're just swapping them out each oh, month okay. so that you can adjust in case there's a huge cataclysmic event that just causes everything to shift. Yeah. See, I always, I always picture, okay, we're hedged out for like two years or something like that. That yeah, way you and- and you are right. Companies do do that, but they'll re-up that plan. Oh, and okay. basically they'll just ca- not cash out, but switch out the contracts for the next month, each month, just in case year a year into it, like I said, Saudi decides to shut off half of their oil production. All of a sudden, half of the oil in the world mm-hmm. is now not available and oil spikes to $300. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, well, now we need to take advantage of this. Yeah. You know, we don't want to necessarily... Yeah. Our hedging position now is, is against us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't know that they were that, like, I guess, liquid or flexible. Yeah, that's the beauty of the financial market. You can exchange these things. And, and especially in the hedging, it's pretty much all just, it's all in the financial realm, which is just what I call paper. Mm-hmm. So you can just can, you can just tear up the agreement from last month and just rewrite the new one <laughs> as long as both sides agree with it. The exchange just makes sure the transaction happens. Yeah, and it's nice. fair. Nobody, you know, so you can't, you know, spoof the market or stuff like that. You can't do anything to fairness. So that's basically why the exchange is there. You know, all people, you know, companies like us, Sandstone Capital Group, who we, you know, both advise EMP companies on how, on just what hedging is, how to hedge, and then actually act on their behalf in hedging. We have to go through extremely rigorous security or background checks and 
all the exams. You have a bunch of different certifications I could throw at you, but it wasn't. It wouldn't mean anything, to you guys. <laughs> the point is, when when you actually get in to do this, there are in some regulations and a lot of stuff you have to go through in order to actually do this, because they they don't necessarily want people hardcore manipulating the market. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's really a good overview of sort of just how oil gets traded, both from a physical and financial, and it's the symbiosis between them is really fascinating. I think a lot of people, like I said, when they think of oil, they think of just either futures or they just think of all they just think of midstream pipelines. And I think the yeah. way they interact is super fascinating, and how something that happens in the physical market, whereas new pipelines coming on in Midland or you know, a huge drop in, you know, you know, a huge, let's see, a proposal or law that gets enacted in New York that cuts off an entire state of oil. You know, mm-hmm. how that affects, how that physical oil trade then affects the financials and all the hedging that it does. And then ultimately how EMPs and companies operate. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I knew it was complex, but man, <laughs> you've really, you've really shed light to even, even just the amount of, of complexities that's all built into this. How yeah, many moving parts and so dynamic it is. There is a lot of moving parts. And I think that's the, the biggest thing when people ask, well, what, you know, I, you know, this is something that I get asked a lot. Well, what's the price of oil going to be? Yeah. Well, as kind of you've just heard, it's, there's a lot of minute details that go into it. And, you know, there could be news that just moves one, pro, you know, one specific contract. You know, there could be a lot of ways that manifest. And so, you know, when people ask me, you know, what causes the, the fluctuation of the price of oil, I'm always, I always laugh because, and I always usually throw out a number. I'm very like, nope, it's going to be this. And I just be very stern out. And then they're like, oh, really? Why? And I sort of laugh and say, ah, you know, we don't really know that. But you know, yeah. really, when you look at what, what does cause the fluctuation of the price of oil, what's convenient is a pure supply demand commodity. There's actual physical oil of it traded. So that helps make sure that oil doesn't spike in doesn't spike too much. It's not necessarily Bitcoin, where it's, where it's purely financial. It's not actually necessarily a physical product per se. And yeah. Bitcoin traders now are going to be screaming at me, but we can make fun of them in this space. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we can, because <laughs> They have know, no voice on this episode. <laughs> What's up? I said they have no voice on this episode. Yeah, they're good people. It's just they, it's, it's different. They, 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 you know, they'll tell you if Bitcoin is a physical commodity, and we'll argue to the grave. And that's the nice part about oil is it's a physical supply demand commodity, which means there's a lot of you know, which which means what affects the price. Well, anything that affects either the supply of oil or the demand for oil. You know, EIA every Wednesday at 7:30 a.m. Pacific time, or about 9:30 Central time, which is generally what everything runs off of in the commodities market, which is Central time. They released the EIA Cushing storage numbers, which is basically how much oil we have stored both at Cushing, both in natural gas, crude oil, and then a couple other things, distillates and a couple other things. And that is a huge market mover. If, if any Cushing storage builds, which means you know, we, we have more oil stored than the previous week, oil price slumps a little bit because now all of a sudden there's just more supply that's mm. sitting there waiting to get sold. Hmm. Whereas if we come out and there's been a draw, that's usually how you'll hear it. You'll, you'll either hear, last week there was a build in crude at Cushing, or you'll hear there was a draw. If you hear there was a draw in oil, you know that price then probably went up from there because there were, the market saw that there was just less supply on the market. And now all of a sudden we have to go get it. You know, what if it all goes away? Mm-hmm. So hmm. that's how the, you know, you know, the EIA numbers affect. OPEC releases, you know, when OPEC has a meeting and goes out and says, you know, hey, we're going to shave a million barrels off of our production. Well, why are they doing that? Well, because they're they're wanting to take supply off the market to help prop up oil price. That's it's you hear that everywhere, and it sounds like I'm just saying it's you know it sounds simple, but it's really all they're doing. Hey, we want to take a million barrels off the market in order to help price, you know, push price up a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why anytime oil gets too high. You know, we have a, a guy in the White House right now loves low oil because it means, you know, eventually it means low, you know, it means bigger investments for private equities. It means gas prices are lower and generally the voting population enjoys lower oil prices. Mm-hmm. So every time oil gets a little too high, well, you know, he threatens to, I'm going to considering tapping the SPR, which is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Well, why is he saying that? Well, if I'm going to release 40 million barrels into the market, that's going to depress the oil price because now there's just all of this supply on the market. So the SPR and you know any threatening if we're going to tap that or not tap that is something that moves the market. And are you from, I, I guess, should I go over what the, S, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is? Yeah, I was, I was wondering what, how that differs from, from Cushing. Yeah, so the Strategic 
Strategic Petroleum Reserve was something that was created back in, I'll just pull up the numbers right now, but what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, it's basically just a salt domes down in, the, in Louisiana in which the United States government specifically buys oil and pumps it in there just to basically hedge against huge cutoff of supply of oil. I mean, you think about Americans, we go through about 18 million barrels of oil a day. That's oh, how wow. much we need. We make about nine and a half. We import the other half. And so we need 18 million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil. And if, you know, back in the 70s, you know, you had things like the Iran, contra- you know, when Iran was we were cut off from oil and there was, you know, people lined up for blocks down the road just waiting to get gasoline because there was just so little oil. So the, the strategic petroleum reserve is down in Louisiana and it's designed basically to as a fail safe against any catastrophic cutoff from oil. It rarely actually gets tapped. It's more of, it's always just gets tapped as a threat. The, the, it's usually a threat. The last time it was actually tapped was Katrina and it hasn't really been tapped then. Trump has actually come out and said he's considered selling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, <laughs> which would be a huge depression to the oil price. I mean, it would be a huge depression to the oil price because currently the Strategic Petroleum Reserve basically is, is, is housing about 100 million barrels of oil, which would be an incredible amount. It's only about, you know, it's only about, you know, 65, 70 days worth of oil for us. And he would consider dumping that all into the market. So that's, that's how, you know, one of the ways he can, you know, can be used to fluctuate the price of oil is SPR. Another is seasons. One of the, you know, a lot of people think that, or not a lot of people think, but, you know, we've talked a lot about crude oil in this podcast mm-hmm. there's really the same thing is happening at these companies but just with their natural gas it's the exact same process nothing really changes but natural gas definitely is affected more is definitely affected more both in seasonal and for weather in the winter time natural gas gets used a lot more and in the summertime natural gas gets stored in california specifically there are some of the top natural gas producers in the summer don't actually produce and just store all of their natural gas in order then to sell it at the higher price during sort of the, what they call the winter months. And that oh, okay. sort of factors into the seasonal effects. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, that, that's really why, you know, that that's the pure supply demand commodity reasons why the price of oil changed. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I'm getting a lot of people talking about, whoa, you haven't talked about the tweets or, you know, the drone strike. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other half of why oil moves because it's a futures contract a lot, it's a speculative market. News mm. of future events or current events that happen definitely move the market. And I gave the example of the Saudi drone strike, which happened a month ago. That was a huge market mover. I mean, the market price of oil jumped up $7, gapped $7. It eventually stabilized. It was only up about $4 towards the end of the day. But at its peak, it was $7 higher than it was before, you know, because it happened on a weekend. Markets were closed. So when it reopened that Sunday night, Mm-hmm. There was a seven dollar difference between when it closed that Friday and then when it opened on Sunday, and I mean you just don't. I mean that's just incredible. That that's a reason why if it's if oil stayed up there, EMPs love to have month to month hedging contracts because they can just swap them out if all of a sudden the their entire analysis just needs to be shifted up mm-hmm. by say seven dollars or ten dollars because of an event like that. Another thing is, you know, I, I talked about the threatening to tap the SPR. Well, that's just done by tweets, you know, and tweets from, you know, the president or really anybody who's involved with the EIA or, you know, people who are involved with large amounts of production mm-hmm. can have, you know, pretty, you know, some semen movements. Generally, it's, it's, it's Trump tweeting out something crazy. <laughs> I, love that. I was actually, I was in a small trade myself just doing a little day trading. This was, I think, early February and I was on the I caught a Trump tweet and it was one of the craziest things I had ever seen just watching this thing just tumble and it, it's complete luck like I you can't say oh, I'm timing the market right when a tweet comes out and it right. comes away but it was I mean it was unbelievable just to see it tumble I, it, it, and you know the effect that he had, the effect that those have on both you know equity markets and the oil markets are a lot a mm. lot of some you know he's you know a lot of the I wouldn't call them threats because I just I think they're just veiled shots at Saudi to continue to cut production. I mean, he he knows what he wants. He wants lower oil prices because that means we get to pay less in in gas. I mean, it's I'm out here in Huntington Beach. It's 480 out here. Ugh, yeah, well, you live in California, so <laughs> yeah, I get the tax for there. It's, yeah, I, it's the, it's not really California tax, but yeah, it's, uh, low oil prices definitely help somebody who's in power. Definitely presidential candidates or presidents who are 
trying to run for re-election. And then, you know, there are other news events, you know, that drop, you know, for example, Asia comes out and says, hey, we're going to, you know, we're considering only buying 90% of the oil allocation that we bought last year. Mm -hmm. Well, now all of a sudden there's, you know, we're still producing that oil. You know, we're constantly producing oil every single minute of every day. So we can't just turn off the taps per se. Mm -hmm. What we can do is we either have to store it somewhere or we have to just use it. And so when a, when a, when a large country comes out and says, mm, we're considering not importing as much, or we're going to, you know, we're going to choose to import from somebody else, it can have a huge ripple effect on the market mm. that can cause, you know, oil to, to move. But generally it's a, it's a supply demand commodity. You're looking at the key storage numbers, which is why the physical market is so important because I think that generally drives the price of oil, but it's, it's pretty news and event driven. And then there's, you know, the, really the third way you can see a, the price of oil, and this is what's funny is I think this is what a lot of people think happens more often than it does, which is that the speculators in the market, the, the evil oil desks who all they're doing is just trading the financial contracts mm-hmm. and just either running up the price or running down the price because they're on the side. While they do, well, that can happen. And there are, you can see, you know, intraday, which when we talk about just day trading in terms of like, you know, not, you know, when we talk about intraday versus I'm going to hold a contract overnight, there's two different amounts of cash you actually have to have. If you're an oil company and you want to hedge, you have to, it costs you about $6,400 $6, for one contract because you're holding that overnight. If you just want to go and trade trade intraday, meaning I'm going to go out and buy a contract during the day, mm-hmm. during the, when the market's open, and I'm going to sell it before the market closes, you only actually have to have about $400 per contract. They, they, they give you, it's called a margin limit. So they can, it allows sort of the little guy to get in. And this is, again, why you have six times the amount of financial contracts being traded and the amount of physical oil that's being produced mm. because anyone really can sit down. You can do this right now. You can sit down at your computer and go into E-Trade, spin up an account and start trading futures for like a thousand bucks. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of how... And so a lot of people think that's huge. Those are really huge market movers. They can be. The problem is it's mostly from the physical side and it really represents a small portion of actually what causes these huge spikes. If you go back and look at the huge moves of oil, it has more to do. It has, you know, you can, it's very easy to look at a 25 year timeline of oil and then pull up a 25 year timeline of just events that have happened in the world and you'll be able to ping oh, this is why, this is why. And you'll just be able to go through just, you know, whether it's the financial crisis, you know, or, you know, Saudi uh, turning off oil or Asian Mm -hmm. buying pressure through a variety of things. Okay, gotcha. One question I have about, you know, price fluctuations and everything, then we'll probably start wrapping up. But how much does, you know, the amount that we're actually importing versus producing ourselves uh, nationally right, affect the price of oil. So if we were to, t- you said roughly 50-50, it sounded like now we were producing ourselves versus importing, but like if that was to shift to like 80 or whatever that we're producing, you know, of our own need, does that change the price or make the international stuff influences less influential or, or what? Yeah, well, if you're the United States, you want to, you know, we would, you know, and this is what I tell people, you know, this idea of you're kind of touching the point of energy independence, you know, right, right now we're heavily dependent on foreign oil. The crazy part is foreign oil, you trade the Brent price, which is generally about a $10 premium to what WTI or what we would consider US mm-hmm. oil trades for because WTI is the benchmark. They just, everyone just, if you're just trying to get a rough price of what the oil is, people go to the WTI and right. the Brent price looking at international. And generally, there's about a $10 spread between them. So part of the reason why you hear energy independence is because if we're able to wean ourselves off of $10 more basis points more per barrel, that's going to help. I mean, it's going to help everybody here. It's going to allow, you know, it's probably going to increase the amount of people having to work. There's a lot of reasons for that. That would affect the international markets. You know, that oil is not going anywhere that is still going to be sold, that would probably definitely cause Brent to rise in it, which is that oil would have to be shifted somewhere. And that's part part of the reason why Saudi Arabia is agreeing to a lot of these oil and debt production cuts. And that's kind of been the big news the past, you know, let's say 18 months, you know, about every three to four months, you'll hear, oh, Saudi's going to do another million barrels. OPEC's coming out and doing another 1.5 million barrels. Well, the reason they're doing that is because we're really increasing our oil and gas production domestically and really focusing on trying to wean ourselves off. And we weren't recently 50-50. We, we were 30% 
producing our own oil 70% as recently as maybe two years ago. Oh, and wow. it's only been recently we've been able to rip it up so high. And that and that's really what's caused Saudi to kind of comply. But we're still only a lot in, of yeah, but we're still only, only about 50-50, though. I thought like we were past that, <laughs> way past that. Yeah, you would think that. And it's crazy because we produce about 9 million barrels of oil a day domestically. But we need, we, we need about 18 to survive. Hmm. Interesting. So we have to get that other nine or nine and a half. And, and the numbers could slightly have shifted with right. you know, a little uh, yeah. So that's generally the, the, the ratio that's, that's out there right now, which is, which is, again, it's interesting. A lot of people don't necessarily know that. And I, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Lots, lots of interesting little tidbit facts here on, the, on this episode, for sure. But I mean, anything. Yeah, it's really easy with this stuff to go down rabbit holes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> for it's, sure. It's really easy. I, I, we, we, could, we could talk for you know, another hour about how weather season patterns affect natural gas trading and how if you were just to trade natural gas, swing trade natural gas based off the seasons, you could probably do okay. You, you're maybe not killing it, but you could be right more often than you're wrong, which huh. is just, which is crazy to think about how commoditized these industries are Yeah, and how segmented you could just get into each one of these topics. And why I think it's sort of, I think people, they, they, they kind of, it's a lot of information at once. And, and I know I'm sure a lot of people probably listen to this, like, wow, that's a lot of information. <laughs> and I didn't get half of that. And that's okay because it is a lot of information. You know, the biggest thing that I think I want people to take away from this is, you know, I, you're probably sitting there, well, how does this affect me? I'm a, you know, I'm a production engineer. I'm a reservoir engineer. I just mm-hmm. work at one of, I work at an upstream operator. How does this necessarily affect me? You know, you know, if the price of oil is, you know, all I think about if the price of oil is going down, that's bad. If the price of oil is going up is good. And generally, that's the case. The interesting part is that the price of oil has little effect to do on the average engineer in mm-hmm. terms of day-to-day. Like any day-to-day changes in the oil and gas price has little to zero effect, mm-hmm. basically because you, we, oil companies can't pivot quick enough to react to intraday price changes. Right. They can, yeah. And that's part of the reason why they hedge. And most of the reasons why companies hedge as it used to be, I mean, again, these, these past six months, and I, you could probably if, you could probably say this about every market at every time frame, you were having people say, well, the last six months have been the craziest it's ever been. But the last six months in terms of the hedging that has gone on dropping from your classic 25 to 40% all the way down to eight, that 25 to 40% represented a lot of cap or a lot of, you know, basically, basically was revenue that would pay for staff. You're cutting down all the way down to eight percent now. There are definitely, you know, if the oil price were go to, you know, if oil price were to take a dive next year, first you'd see that number of hedging continue, you would increase. But there were, you know, then you would definitely see, you know, in terms of, you know, what you think of mass layoffs for the oil price. But generally, you know, with that number sitting at twenty-five to forty, that it's really able to stabilize that, and that's why they hedge so they don't have to go through huge staff turnovers just because of the financial price of oil. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But, you know, the other thing is, as an engineer, what you will find is that it might affect whether they invest more or less in, you know, heavy CapEx projects. You know, mm-hmm. drilling is something that is capital intensive and requires money, meaning if you're going to, and if you're going to go out and drill a well, it's going to cost you money and you hope it's going to produce you a physical barrel, which means you're going to have to go sell it. So, you know, with the, with the, with the rate, you can turn around oil wells these days. That's not necessarily my expertise, but it's quick. I think it's, I mean, I think the fastest one's like nine, 10 days. You know, they mm-hmm. can turn around some of these wells. I mean, you can, you know, you're subjugating yourself if you decide to invest heavily in drilling to whatever the oil price is right now outside of hedging. Mm-hmm. So, you know, year long, you know, year-long price changes might find, you know, might find, you know, lower investments in heavy CapEx projects, but that's really not what you're seeing right now, you know, kind of, you know, the outlook for EMPs right now, you know, because they're hedged so little that that means that they're slight, that means that, you know, they're generally fairly bullish, but they're also super unsure about what's going to happen. And they'd rather not spend all this time coming up with all these intense swap contracts that to roll out on a month-to-month basis when they may have to go in three months from now and completely shift them because there's been a huge event that has caused oil to rise or fall $10. Yeah. So generally yeah. lower hedging means they're a little more bullish because it's just, it's easier. It's much easier to, to trade a bull market than a, than a market that's going down. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the less hedging does signify a little bit of that, but it could also be, again, you know, economists and traders are classic for saying, if it does this, this is what's going to happen. But if this happens, then this will happen. And so you, you are always constantly talking about both sides of our mouths. But, you know, the other side of it is they're just hedged so little because it would take so much time to redo these contracts on a month to month basis that they're willing just to let it play out and mm-hmm. sort of or react as the market changes. So that's kind of, you're wondering kind of what the outlook of, of, of the price of oil is or, and what the people who, who quote unquote, know what the oil is going to do, they don't even know. They're, yeah. just, they're, they're sort of just waiting to see what happens. And, and I think that's sort of the biggest takeaway from, from all this. Gotcha. <laughs> definitely lots of information. I'll throw this out there for listeners as well. I mean, this is definitely a a topic I'm sure we can we can even hit more on. I mean, if, if this is something, you know, specific, you know, specific areas of, of this that you'd like to learn more about, feel free to reach out to me. We'll try and get it coordinated probably, you know, with Michael again or whoever be the case, right? If we want to dive more into this, but definitely a very, very rich <laughs> material wise, lots of things to talk about trading. So I'm, I'm really glad that you reached out to us. It's been, and like you mentioned, you know, being a real dense episode, but you know, Hey, that's the beauty of a podcast. We can go back and listen to this again. And I'll probably have to do the same thing. Go back and listen to this once it's out and <laughs> re-educate myself again and hear it again second time myself. Exactly. No, I've really enjoyed this. I've appreciated you, you know, allowing me to come on. And For yeah, sure, I definitely, if you want to, if you want to learn more about this, I think the biggest thing is just to, you know, you know, re-listen this episode, but also you know, Google, you know, part of the reason how I got into this when I was in college in the first place was, was Google. I just mm-hmm. typed in how to trade oil and <laughs> it, it'll piece it together. Um, really? You know, I'm definitely more than welcome. Yeah. I mean, that's when I was in, you know, c- kind of what got me down this, you know, the trading path that I, that I've enjoyed is I took a, a class in college and I took, you know, engineering economics. And you're a minds guy. You know, I took that class with Sturmel and you play the, the stock market game where you just, and it fascinated me. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and so that's sort of, I went from just studying petroleum engineering to then I picked up the economics degree. And that's sort of what got me down this road. I ended up writing a be on a research team that, that, that wrote a, a paper on doing some oil price modeling. And that's what kind of got me into the professional world of this and how I transitioned, I guess, from the pure engineer. So I actually do have a petroleum engineering degree, oh, really? um, but I'm very honest. I, yes, I do. I don't know anything. I never spent um, <laughs> one minute as an engineer. That's perfectly fine, um, man. Yeah. So um, I, I, but yeah, I, I spent one minute as an engineer, but I technically do have a, a degree. So I sat through the, I sat through the lecture. <laughs> but it sounds like you're doing what you love though. It's great, great turnout. <laughs> Turned yes, out pretty no, good. I, I'm enjoying it a lot. You know, like you mentioned, if you have any questions, you know, you feel free to reach out to you and then you can forward it to me. You can, you know, find me on LinkedIn. I'm very easy to get a hold of, very informal. I love talking with new people and yeah, I'm just, you know, excited to come <laughs> on here and chat with you. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate your time and look forward to probably some future collaborations at some point then. But thanks again so much. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Derek. I've appreciated it. <laughs> and thanks, you guys, for listening. And I'll cut it off there, but we'll catch you in the next episode, guys. Take care. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to the Oilfield Basics Discover podcast. We hope you found this episode to be valuable and we look forward to learning more together in our next episode. Be sure to follow us on our social media and visit oilfieldbasics.com for more great educational content, including videos, courses, and more. Also, be sure to check out our partners, Digital Wildcatters, for even more great content, including podcasts and video blogs on their own social media and on their own website, digitalwildcatters.com. If you're interested in supporting the show or in being a guest, please reach out to myself, Derek Craig, through LinkedIn or by emailing contact at oilfoodbasics.com. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care.